Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome. I guess the mic is working. That's nice to know. I'm Dan Palazzolo. I'm a professor of political science and co-director of the Gary L. McDowell Institute, along with my colleague, Terry Price, who is professor of leadership studies. The McDowell Institute is dedicated to free inquiry, thoughtful deliberation, and vigorous discussion of classical texts and issues in political economy. We welcome all members of the University of Richmond to share their perspectives. These values were essential to Dr. McDowell's life, his teaching, and his scholarship, and it's not by happenstance that they are essential, they are essential values for a thriving democracy and a liberal education. I want to share a few program notes and thank yous before we begin. At the end of Dr. Montaz's address, there should be some time for questions. If you have one, just raise a hand, raise your hand and give us a minute and we'll try to reach, up, reach you. Catherine Rockwell has got a microphone and, and I'll ask her to, um, to go ahead and, and pick out the questions as we go. Our session will end around six and there's a reception in the lobby from six to seven. You're welcome, it's just out those doors right there to join us. And Dr. Montez will be available uh, to sign copies of his book, Rescuing Socrates, How Great Books Changed My Life and Why They Matter for a New Generation. Part of that new generation is a group of student fellows at the McDowell Institute. Each year, the student fellows read important texts and meet to discuss them with seminar leaders. This year, in addition to Plato's Apology, the fellows read Dr. Monta's book uh, and met every couple of weeks to share in lively discussions with two outstanding faculty members, Dr. Kevin Cherry, Associate Professor of Political Science, and Dr. Jessica Flanagan, Associate Professor of Leadership Studies, and the Richard L. Morrill Chair in Ethics and Values. Today, the fellows had a chance to meet and discuss the book with Dr. Montas. The fellows and seminar leaders are seated here in front, and I'd ask you just to stand so we can recognize you. Thank you all. Thanks very much. We would also like to thank uh, Dr. Sandra Peart, Dean of the Jepson School of Leadership Studies, for outstanding support of the McDowell Institute and Catherine Rockwell, the administrative coordinator, for her help with all of our events. Over the years, the Institute has involved faculty and students from all five schools, but we could hardly manage without the administrative leadership and support of the Jepson School. Finally, we are very grateful for a generous gift from the Pauley Family Foundation, which makes all of our programs possible. Let's do a little more cheer. All right, let's And now I'd like to ask Dr. Richard L. Morrill, Chancellor of the University of Richmond, and among other things, a great champion of the liberal arts to introduce our speaker. Dr. Morrill. Thank you, everyone, and thank you, Dan. Uh, good evening and welcome to this uh, signature event at the University of Richmond here in the Robbins School of Business sponsored by the Jepson School of Leadership Studies and its uh, McDowell Institute, which is, as you know, an interdisciplinary, in, interdisciplinary uh, program that involves uh, the whole university. I have a hard time tonight introducing our speaker, Roosevelt Montas. That's because I am not objective about him, because I am uh, his friend, a colleague, and a collaborator. I first worked with Roosevelt when he was the director of the Columbia program, which is called uh, 
the core curriculum. And during that time, I was uh, uh, the chair and then the president of the Teagle Foundation uh, in New York. And that's where our paths first crossed. Besides teaching and directing the core program at Columbia, Roosevelt was also the director of a program for low-income high school students, the rising seniors, from diverse neighborhoods around the Columbia campus. The program is called Freedom and Citizenship, and its readings and discussions focus on Plato and Aristotle and Socrates and Locke and Rousseau and Hobbes and the founding documents of the United States. It also goes on to include the readings and the thought of a variety of change agents, such as Frederick Douglass and Sojourner Truth, Martin Luther King, and others. Freedom and citizenship had been inaugurated a year or two before I was at Teagle, and Roosevelt approached the foundation for support. We made the right bet. Because the program continues in full swing, it has been widely recognized, and it has also been the recipient of contributions for the endowment from a number of alumni of Columbia, so it has a future. We had no trouble really considering the relevance of the grant because the Teagle Foundation has long had a program based upon the desires of the founder to provide support for low-income students for a college education. About 20 years ago, Teagle started programs of inviting high school students who were uh, thinking about college to consider joining a program of about 20 in number that Teagle was sponsoring all over the greater New York area. Each program is different, but the goals are often similar to some of those that we find in freedom and citizenship, to enrich and to stretch young minds, to encourage students to think about their futures, and to engage in the kind of critical thinking and effective writing and close reading that is so much what they will do in college. What I have learned since those days is how much Roosevelt himself embodied the objectives of the program that he was leading and of our other programs. As he tells us in Rescuing Socrates, he arrived in New York as an immigrant at age 12, unable to speak English, with pockets empty, and the unknown at every corner. Through an educational opportunity program and the love and support of his extended family and a variety of friends of all ages, he successfully pushed through barriers and was accepted to Columbia. He continued his studies there for a PhD degree and then wrote his dissertation on abolitionism in the works of the American transcendentalists. That's a, that's a mouthful. As I read reading Socrates, I found his experiences of study, teaching, and leadership in the Columbia Corps to be an example of the reverberation through life of what liberal studies can provide. His account is an arresting and beautifully crafted intellectual and personal autobiography. A lot of insights re remain with me 
because he has a deft touch as a teacher who can translate dense and difficult terminology and ideas into understandable phrases and explanations. He's able to take thinkers like Socrates and Plato and Augustine and Freud and Gandhi and make them accessible. What's even more striking to me is the way in which he encourages students to take these ideas to heart in shaping their own values and lives, in, in wrestling with what it means to believe that an unexamined life is not worth living. Roosevelt and the Teagle Foundation went on to work together on a second project, supporting colleges with core programs to share ideas and practices about their work. In one case, a talented professor from a small college became a professor in the core program to the benefit of all. The grant program itself was centered precisely on the larger aims of liberal education, both to empower the mind and to foster commitments to freedom, justice, and citizenship as ennobling ways of life. With pride and affection, I present my friend and colleague, Roosevelt Montas. Oh, thank you for that generous and warm introduction, Richard, and for the warm and affectionate welcome I have received from you and from the greater community here. Um, Rich Morrow has been a supporter of my work uh, from the time that it only showed a glimmer of potential. Um, and I am so grateful for the, the support, but also for the confidence that he showed in the work that I and, and, and other colleagues at Columbia were doing. Um, and I want to thank my hosts for this visit. Um, it's my first visit at the University of Richmond and my first visit to Richmond. Um, but it's been a tremendous experience so far. Um, I want to thank specifically Dan Palazzolo, Palazzolo for his um, shepherding me around, uh, introducing me to everyone, setting up meetings um, and opportunities for me to get a sense of the campus. Um, Jess Flanagan, who earlier today moderated uh, an in-depth and rich conversation with the humanities scholars, the humanities scholars themselves, thank you for um, the wonderful time, wonderful conversation. And thank you all for being here today on this beautiful, um, sort of herald of the spring to come. Um, it makes me a little uh, worry to think that I, I, have, I should have something to say that is a worthy competitor to the, beautiful, to the beauties outside of this, these doors, but I'll try. Um, but let me say it's a, it's a tremendous honor to be here and to, and to come here to this institution to speak about liberal education. Liberal education is, a, is an old subject, but it's one that can never be far from the mind of anyone who cares about human freedom 
and about what it means to educate an individual who is free. And, and besides this sort of perennial importance of liberal education, it is also an urgent issue today. Our political culture seems to be faltering precisely along the lines that liberal education is meant to address. And at the same time, many colleges and universities are diluting liberal education and shunting it to the sidelines. But before getting into all that, let me say something to the students who are here today. Liberal education is that portion of your education that is due to you from us by virtue of your humanity. It is that part of your education that sees you not as a professional in the making, but as a whole human being, and tries to help you face that condition in all of its mystery and complexity. The concern of liberal education is not for how you will make a living, but for how you will live well. It is not about making a living, it's about how to have a life. It should matter in the deepest way, and it should give you something that is great beyond comparison. Some of you came to college with the specific goal of pursuing a liberal education. And, and that is not the same thing as majoring in the liberal arts. You can and should get a liberal education regardless of what major you pursue. In fact, an undergraduate curriculum that does not provide students with a solid liberal education regardless of their major is a fatally defective curriculum. I admire those of you who came to college specifically looking for a liberal education. When I applied to college, I had no idea what a liberal education was. And I can't help but wonder what it would have taken to get a student like the one I was in high school to grasp the meaning of a liberal education. As it happens, I ended up at the one major research university that has a required great books liberal arts curriculum that all students must complete, regardless of the major. It takes up most of the first two years of coursework at Columbia College. The way that that intellectual experience expanded and transformed my inner life drives much of the work that I do to this day. So the question returns, what would it have taken to communicate to me when I was a low-income immigrant and first-generation high school student what a liberal education at the college level means? Last year, I published a book called Rescuing Socrates, How the Great Books Changed My Life and Why They Matter for a New Generation. As the title suggests, that book reflects on the role that liberal education has played in my own life. But its deeper concern is about the imperative at a time like this for colleges to take seriously their mission of educating students liberally. Drawing on my own experience, I emphasize the urgency of making liberal education accessible to people who come from what we call marginalized communities, people who have not had access to the resources, opportunities, and privileges that most people who go to college have had access to. Now being here at the University of Richmond, a bastion of liberal education, a place that proudly calls itself a liberal arts institution, I count myself as speaking to a friendly audience. 
Even so, I hope that I can say things today that will not only affirm what you already know, but invite deeper reflection on just what it is that we're doing here. What is this education we are pursuing, and what is at stake when we promote or neglect it? By the time I started writing the book, I had spent 10 years as director of Columbia University's Center for the Core Curriculum. Even though I always recognized the value of liberal education to be rooted in a subjective and personal experience, throughout my time as director, I always avoided making the case for liberal education with reference to my own life. And my reluctance stemmed from my distaste for these stereotypes associated with the immigrant story. You know, the cardboard cutout narrative of the rise from poverty and marginality through education and hard work. It's not that these things aren't true about me, but that I have refused to turn those aspects of my life into an identity. In the same way, and probably for similar reasons, I have resisted a force I have felt pressing on me from the whole culture to define my identity primarily in terms of my ethnicity and the color of my skin. But the decision to write that book caused something to unlatched in me. It was suddenly clear that I could only write a book about liberal education in the first person and with my whole self in it. My case would have to synthesize the arguments and insights I had developed over the course of my academic career with an honest examination of my inner and outer life and how it had been shaped by my experience of liberal education. And that's what Rescuing Socrates is about. I hope that you permit me to speak today, as I do in the book, with my whole self and to weave into my remarks on liberal education reflections of a more personal sort. So let me get some of the autobiographical details out of the way. I grew up in a small rural town in the foothills of big mountains in the Dominican Republic. I came to the United States not speaking English two days before my 12th birthday. The town I grew up in, in the interior, as they say, was immersed in agrarian and pre-industrial rhythms. It extended six streets in one direction four streets in the other direction. My childhood address was Calle 6, Casa 7, the seventh house on the sixth street. I remember when roads were, were paved in the town. I remember when we got running water. At home, we had no television, no stove, no refrigerator, no phone. Sometimes as a shorthand, I say that I grew up in the 19th century among people who had grown up in the 18th century. So there is a considerable distance, not measurable in miles, between there and this podium. The role that liberal education has played in that trajectory is the motive force. It's the little engine that drives my advocacy of liberal education and which gives it its particular contours. I landed in New York City in 1985 with my older brother to join our mother who had immigrated two years earlier. In many ways, we were a typical Dominican immigrant family, poor, not speaking English, and with little knowledge of what life would be like in the US. But we had seen enough to be convinced that whatever it was, life in the US would have better opportunities for us 
than in the Dominican Republic. My mother got and then lost a minimum wage job in a garment factory. My brother and I moved to the basement, to a basement room in a, the house of a distant relative for a few years while mom fared for herself. We went to the local public school. We didn't live paycheck to paycheck since we didn't have jobs. We lived hand to mouth. It was rough going, and you can read, read about it in the book. But my point is that when I speak about how a liberal education can illuminate a life, give people unique tools to navigate their inner and outer worlds and empower them to transform their reality, I speak from personal experience. Now, I have already used the term liberal education a number of times, so let me try to specify what I mean. The term is not well understood, even, even by academics. In the general public, it invokes a hazy idea that combines the political baggage of the word liberal with the reputed uselessness of studying art. So let me clarify, clarify what I mean. The idea of liberal education goes back to the ancient democracy of Athens, where it was conceived as the education appropriate for the free citizen. Aristotle described it as an education given not because it is useful or necessary, but because it is noble and suitable for a free person. All Athenian citizens, the kind of free persons that Aristotle had in mind, participated in government by voting directly on the adoption of laws, holding political office, deliberating on juries, and serving in the army. It was a direct democracy. And the point of liberal education was to prepare the citizens for these civic responsibilities. To this day, democracies depend on a citizenry capable of discharging the duties for which a liberal education prepared Athenian citizens. Indeed, and I don't say this lightly, the possibility of democracy hinges on the success or failure of liberal education. In the slave democracy of Athens, liberal education was distinguished from the education of an enslaved person or of a vulgar craftsman. Today, it is distinguished from professional, technical, or vocational education. Liberal education looks to the meaning of a human life beyond the requirements of subsistence. Instead of asking how to make a living, liberal education asks what living is for. These studies, says Aristotle, are undertaken for their own sake, whereas those relating to work are necessary and for the sake of things other than themselves. So liberal education concerns itself with the human yearning to go beyond questions of survival to questions of existence. This yearning is rooted in a unique condition all human beings share. That is the condition of freedom. Now, there are of course lots of ways in which we're not free and ways in which some of us are more free than others. We are constrained on every side. We are enmeshed in contingency, subject to biological and evolutionary imperatives, driven by psychic forces, social forces, historical forces beyond our control, and sometimes even beyond our grasp. In the political sphere, injustice and persistent forms of inequality 
mean that many individuals cannot even enjoy the basic liberties that modern democracies have been organized to secure. So in some ways, we're not free. Yet, our condition as human beings brings along an immediate and fundamental experience of freedom. Now, I know that not everyone accepts this. Some scholars have argued that individual freedom is a liberal fantasy, an expression of bourgeois privilege, sometimes male white privilege. There certainly is bourgeois privilege as well as male white privilege. And it's true that normative conceptions of freedom in Western political discourse have been shaped by these dominant vantage points. So I see where the critique is coming from. But there is more to the notion of freedom than that critique admits. The experience of freedom is a fundamental aspect of our humanity, quite apart from the social and historical determinants under which it has been theorized. Let me point to two ways in which that condition of freedom is evident. One is in the human capacity for self-reflection. This is a little abstract, so bear with me. Self-reflection, looking and examining and learning about yourself is a very curious thing. When you reflect on yourself, you do so in order to discover something that you did not know before. Self-reflection presupposes a kind of indeterminacy. And then self-reflection, this activity that cannot have a predetermined outcome, changes us. It changes us in the very act of doing it. It is an act of self-transformation. The entity we see when we reflect on ourselves is no longer the same entity that is looking. In the activity of seeing ourselves, we become something else. The object we reflect on is changed by our reflection. In other words, because of our capacity for self-reflection, we live as fundamentally incalculable beings, that is, free beings. Our experience of ourself is the experience of freedom. A second way in which our experience of freedom is evident and inescapable is that each one of us, no matter how unfree we are, must posit for him or herself some notion of the good, some notion of what is the best kind of life that we can live, and then order his or her actions and pursuits according to it. No one can do that for you. You, and only you, have to work out what whole manner of life you think is most worthwhile pursuing. It is an inescapable implication of our freedom. It is also the ground for our moral agency. This aspect of our freedom, that we must find our way to some notion of the human good, is the starting point of liberal education. Because of its emphasis on self-reflection, on an individual examining in a way that implicates the self, the character of his or her own experience, you will often hear people speak of liberal education as something that has transformed them. And it's, it's there in the title of my book. I certainly speak of it in that way. Let me pause a minute on this claim that education, and liberal education in particular, has the power and the tendency to transform people's lives. And let me add that that transformative potential 
of liberal education unfolds in as many varieties and configurations as there are individuals in the world. Like self-reflection on which it depends, liberal education cannot have a predetermined outcome. Another way in which the kind of transformation that liberal education promotes is distinctive is that it is thoroughgoing. It is like walking through a thick fog. It soaks you through and through. Liberal education doesn't just add more knowledge on top of your previous stock. Liberal education rearranges everything else that you know. You don't just end up with more knowledge. You end up with a different configuration of knowledge. Liberal knowledge, in other words, alters the internal proportions of your soul. That's why it is transformative. In liberal learning, there is no separation between what you know and who you are. Let me invoke this experience of transformation as it began for one of my intellectual and political heroes, Frederick Douglass. This is a passage, it's a longish passage, bear with me, from his 1845 biography, Narrative of the Life of an American Slave. Let me um, set this up for you. So Douglas is born in a plantation in Maryland on the Eastern Shore. He grows up there until he's about eight years old when his master, his enslaver, sends him to live with his brother, the master's brother who lives in Baltimore, in the big port city, kind of the bustling metropolis. It's Douglas's first time out of the plantation. Um, he talks very movingly about how blown away, wowed he is by the sights of the ships and the port and the big city. So he arrives at this house where he has been sent because the, the, his new master has a son, a child about Douglas's age. So he's sent there to be sort of a household servant and a companion to the little boy. Um, this passage I'm going to read takes place in the early days after Douglas's arrival. One word about this passage, it has the N-word in it. It is pronounced, it is said by the master. The N-word back here was a derogatory, dehumanizing slur like it is today. I'm not going to pronounce the word. Um, I'm going to replace it with the word slave, but I guarantee that your American ear is going to pick up where that word is used. And I, I'm not going to say it because in today's environment, that word has come to almost be an indecent word that one doesn't say in polite company. Um, so I'm going to replace it with the word slave. Very soon after I went to live with Mr. and Mrs. Ald, she very kindly commenced to teach me the ABC. After I had learned this, she assisted me in learning to spell words of three or four letters. Just at this point in my progress, Mr. Old found out what was going on and at once forbade Mrs. Old to instruct me further, telling her, among other things, that it was unlawful as well as unsafe to teach a slave to read. To use his own words further, he said, if you give a slave an inch, he will take an L. We have a version of that saying today, if you give someone an inch, they'll take a mile. It's that same, that same saying. A slave should know nothing but to obey his master, to do as he is told to do. Learning would spoil the best slave in the world. Now, said he, if you teach that slave, speaking of myself, how to read, 
there would be no keeping him. It would forever unfit him to be a slave. He would at once become unmanageable and of no value to his master. As to himself, it could do him no good but a great deal of harm. It would make him discontented and unhappy. Douglas comes back to his own voice. These words sank deep into my heart, stirred up sentiments within that lay slumbering, and called into existence a new train of thought. It was a new and special revelation explaining dark and mysterious things with which my youthful understanding had struggled but struggled in vain. I now understood what had been to me a, a most perplexing difficulty to wit the white man's power to enslave the black man. Now, let me pause here for a second and, and see what Douglas is saying here. So Douglas is a little black boy, slave boy, close up in the plantation, grows up surrounded by other slaves, by, by, by grown up black people. He knows them intimately. He knows that they're not dumber. He knows that they're not weaker. He knows that they're not inferior in any way to the whites, who he knows very closely too from the, from the, from the, ha the house. He is in intimate contact with them. He knows that they're not smarter, they're not stronger, they're not better than these black people he knows. Yet, everywhere he looks, well, he is the white people enslaving the black people, and he can't figure out what, how is this? Why is this? What is the origin of this? How did this come about? What, what can explain this? He can't figure it out. And here, he sees it. He gets the key. It has to do with literacy and controlling access to knowledge. From that moment, he continues, I understood the pathway from slavery to freedom. It was just what I wanted, and I got it at a time when I least expected it. Whilst I was saddened by the thought of losing the aid of my kind mistress, I was gladdened by the invaluable instruction which by the merest accident I had gained from my master. Though conscious of the difficulty of learning without a teacher, I set out with high hope and a fixed purpose at whatever cost of trouble to learn how to read. And boy, did Douglas learn how to read and write and became one of the sort of towering figures in American political thought, becoming editor of a newspaper and a prolific author and orator. But today, you might say, there's no more slavery. Slavery is a thing of the past, outlawed by the 13th, by the 13th Amendment. Now, it's true that there is no longer in the US chattel slavery, where you and your children are literally owned by someone else 24-7 and forever. But there are other forms of subjugation, coercion, domination that pervade in, our, in modern life and which have much in common with slavery. Liberal education, the kind of education to which Douglas saw a window in his acquisition of literacy today is also aimed at charting a path from slavery to freedom, at somehow transforming you in such a way that you are forever unfit to be a slave. Let me point to two broad domains in which forms of enslavement persist in contemporary life, one public and one private. One pervasive form of subjugation that exists around us is what some people call wage slavery. That's when you sell your labor for a period of time and are, during that time, effectively subject to a master. 
this form of slavery was recognized even in antiquity. I'm not going to get very much into this, but let me say that it's almost taken for granted that this is okay. That it's some kind of life to sell yourself to servitude and dehumanization from Monday to Friday in order to buy the privilege of living on the weekends. But it's not so. This is not the worthiest life for a human being. There is no virtue in that, no expression of human excellence, no recognition of human dignity, but on the contrary, a degrading brutalization of human nature. So it's no education to prepare you and convince you to sell a portion of your humanity for wages. And there are high earning wage slaves and low earning wage slaves. It's not about the amount. It's about the conditions and the structures under which you put yourself to earn that wage. Of course, education should enable you to make a better living than you would without an education. But there is also a higher and more fundamental calling for education. Education should also be about how to be free, about how to live the life of a free individual, not just how to live the life of a hired laborer. So that's one form of subjugation that exists in our society today. There is another and more pervasive kind of subjugation of slavery, and that is when one aspect of ourselves exerts tyrannical control over another. Here, let me quote Jean-Jacques Rousseau from The Social Contract. He writes there, to be driven by appetite alone is slavery. An obedience to the law one has prescribed for oneself is liberty. This even more pervasive aspect of servitude has to do with the contradictorily layered nature of our psyche. Freedom, you know, is great, but it brings its own problems. Until recently, some of you lived at home under the governance of your parents. As you no doubt noticed, one of the shocks of college life is the challenge of self-governance. Many people who fail at college fail not for, the, for intellectual reasons, that the material they're asked to learn is just beyond their grasp, but they fail because of failures in self-governance. How do we organize the tangle of psychic forces, conflicting desires, and contradictory impulses that coexist in our mortal frame? You know, you want to be fit, but you don't want to exercise. You want to play a musical instrument beautifully, the way someone else you know does, but you don't want to practice. You want to lose weight, but you want to eat all the desserts. And these desires are sincere, wholehearted, genuine. Our capacity for desire and our capacity for logical consistency live completely independent lives. I submit to you that the maximal possibilities for human freedom come from the optimal organization from the more or less successful integration of our inner lives. When Douglas, listening to his enslaver, recognizes that learning would forever unfit him to be a slave, he is hearing the recognition that education 
encourages inner developments that transform your life from the inside out in a way that liberates and that is irreversible. And part of that comes from this capacity, these tools to integrate our contradictory layered psyche. This form of knowledge that liberal education confers, what I call liberal knowledge, is different than the kind of knowledge that dominates in the university. As a shorthand, we can call this dominant form of knowledge in the university scientific knowledge. Scientific knowledge progresses cumulatively. It builds on the discoveries of the past and adds new ones on top of those. So we understand infectious disease, electromagnetic radiation, climate change, much better today than we did 50 years ago. This is progress. But liberal knowledge doesn't quite progress that way. We don't understand the experience of grief, how to live with the consciousness of death, the meaning of love and nobility, any better today than we did 100 years ago. The latest war novel is not an improvement on the Iliad. And the same goes for art. Warhol and Rothko are not superior to Michelangelo and Renoir. Art doesn't get better as time goes on. I've been thinking about the nature of liberal education for a long time, talking to students, faculty, university leaders, and visiting a lot of college campuses. One general observation I can make is that college students across the country are fo focusing early, earlier and earlier on career-oriented majors, and thereby failing to seek the kind of broad education that prepares them for engaged democratic citizenship. And in a way, this is perfectly understandable, even justifiable, that students would orient their education that way. Less justifiable, in my view, is a mass withdrawal by universities from offering students, regardless of their major, a general education that is truly liberal. On most campuses, general education, that portion of the curriculum that lies outside of the student's major, has come to mean little more than loose distribution requirements, which allow faculty to stick to their specialties and students to avoid the enduring historical, political, and ethical questions that are at stake in true liberal education. This is a problem not only for faculty in the humanities and social sciences, whose ranks are thinning because students are turning away, but it's a problem for our democracy, which depends on its vitality on an educated citizenry. At the heart of undergraduate liberal education are courses and curricula designed to give students a shared experience through common readings in major texts, in small classes where fundamental questions are discussed and debated with nuance and civility. In most cases, this means that faculty have to step out of their disciplinary comfort zones and engage in a project that is really quite removed from the reproduction of their professional expertise a project that is concerned with cultivating human beings for the fullest expression of the innate capacities that make them free agents. I mentioned earlier that the term liberal education is not well understood. After I wrote my book, I decided to let the people who make a living selling books come up with a title. 
But I did express my hope that the words liberal education would appear in the title. My hope was not fulfilled. What did make it to the title was the phrase, great books. So let me say a few words about great books. Let me begin with the adjective great. With reference to books, great is of course a contestable term. We may disagree about what constitutes greatness in a book. Not only that, some literary authorities believe that there is no such thing as a great book to begin with. That the designation great is only a way of asserting and perpetuating particular power structures and enforcing certain norms of discursive domination and exclusion. I will not engage with this argument except to say that while it is based on an important insight, it takes that insight and turns it into an absurd dogma. I believe that we can keep the insight without adopting the dogma. We can think of a great book as one that contributes in some outstanding way to the kind of liberal education I have been describing. A great book speaks to our shared human condition. That is, it speaks beyond its immediate historical and cultural context. It is not great because it reflects its specific cultural, historical, and economic situatedness. It is great because it speaks beyond that to something that transcends its historical particularity and illuminates our shared humanity. Moby Dick is not great because of its detailed portrayal of the New England whaling industry. It is great for some other reason. The Divine Comedy is not great because of Dante's immersion in the theology of the medieval church and in the factional intrigues of Italian politics. The Divine Comedy is great because in the midst of those specific trappings, it can reveal something that is vitally meaningful to say a 21st century unbelieving Dominican immigrants to the United States. By the same token, it is not Toni Morrison's immersion in the, legacy, in the legacy of American slavery that makes her novels great. It's her ability to make that human experience alive and accessible to someone who has no historical connection to it. Great works are great because of a palpable yet elusive capacity to illuminate our shared humanity. Another characteristic of great books is that they tend to be complex resisting ideological reduction or use as sources of indoctrination. In the case of great literature, great books are not summarizable. You can only get what great literature has to give by experiencing it as it is. You have to go through it. It's the experience of it, not the knowledge of what it says that does the work of literature. The Wikipedia entry on Moby Dick will not do. You'll get all the facts, but it will not do. As Ralph Waldo Emerson said of Revelation, what literature has to deliver cannot be received secondhand. One more word about great literature, and with this I will begin to wrap up my formal remarks so we can do some Q&A. Great literature is the absolute best way we have of approaching the experience of what it's like to be someone else. In the form of the novel, 
I believe it is the most successful technology ever devised to understand the world from somebody else's point of view. You cannot get inside someone else's head. The closest thing you can do is read great literature. Through great literature, you can spend hour after hour seeing the world and reasoning through situations with someone of a different gender, class, culture, or time. You know, part of the problem with our technological revolution or revolutions is that they have been driven by engineering breakthroughs and shaped by people with computational genius who can be quite clueless about history, philosophy, art, and literature. This is actually one of the reasons why liberal education, while being progressively weakened in the contemporary academy, is in fact more important today than it has ever been. The psychological complexities of human behavior have preoccupied great authors since forever. And there is something profound for us to learn about human behavior by studying great writers. In fact, there is something profound to be learned by reading great literature that cannot be learned in any other way. Great books give us access to truths about the human condition that are not available in any other form, not in the hard sciences, not in the social sciences, and not in the course of our ordinary experience with the world. To understand what is ethical, to understand what policies will work, to evaluate the consequences of a given technology, to anticipate how society will assimilate a scientific breakthrough or historical turn, you need to understand something that you can broadly call culture. You can think of culture as a grid of interconnected practices, traditions, values, and implicit understandings in which every single individual is embedded. We live radically embedded in these webs and have no human existence outside of them. To understand an individual, to understand people, you have to understand culture. And there is no better way to understand a culture than through the enduring stories it tells about itself and the arguments that have shaped its understanding of itself. Writing in 1940, the intellectual Louis Mumford, observing the rise of fascism in Europe, criticized Western liberalism for its tepid response and wrote an essay on the new, in the New Republic called The Corruption of Liberalism that says, among other amazing insights, this, this quote, unfortunately, it is not in Ricardo, Marx, or Lenin, but in Dante and Shakespeare and Dostoevsky that an understanding of the true sources of fascism is to be found. When we think about the great power conflicts that are reemerging in our society, the immediate hot conflict that the US and its NATO allies is fighting with Russia, with Ukraine as a proxy, the looming rivalry and heating rivalry between the US and China, the sources that we have to draw on to navigate those complexities do not come from technology, do not come from scientific knowledge, they will ultimately come from our understanding of culture and our understanding of human nature. Before I close, I want to return to a question I raised earlier about what it would have taken for someone like me when I was in high school to understand what a liberal education would mean. It strikes me as a task 
of the greatest importance to reach, to expand the reach of liberal education to people who have been traditionally excluded from it. This matters to national life because we cannot have a prosperous society, a thriving society, a healthy society that is divided by privileges of birth and where individuals are structurally denied the tools for participation in collective self-governance. In my experience, when people are given a taste of what a liberal education is and what it does, they want it from them, for themselves and for their children. People have an impulse towards freedom and self-determination, a hunger for truth and self-transcendence that makes liberal education immediately compelling. It's not true that all students want from college is a job. No matter how much broader, the broader culture tell, tells them that this is what they should want, it does not succeed in beating out of them needs and aspirations that can only be satisfied by non-economic goods. They long for an education that addresses their entire humanity, not just their stomachs, not just their pockets. An education that not only teaches them things, but which transforms them, transforms them. An education that's not just about making a better living, but about living a better life. Let me end with this. Sometimes people say that the point of liberal education is exactly its uselessness, that it is not pursued as a means to obtain something else, but that it is simply sought for its own sake. I see the point, but I don't think that's the right way of framing it. A liberal education is extremely useful and we pursue it for the highest of human ends. To put it simply, a liberal education is there to help you find your way. And this is your basic task in life, to find your way. There is in the final analysis nothing else for you to do in your life but to find your way. Not someone else's way, not the way of your role models or of your elders, not the way of success, but your way. A liberal education does not tell you what your way is, but it equips you for a kind of self-exploration and investigation of the world around you that can lead to genuine living, to a life of honesty and clarity. That life might include making a lot of money, but it might not. The point of liberal education is not to make you rich. That life might include having an impact on many lives around you, but it might not. The point of liberal education is not to make you a benefactor of humanity. That life might include many friends, or it might not. The point is not to make you affable, to win your friends, to make you popular. But a liberally educated life will be richer than otherwise. It will be more true. It will be more awake. It will be more alive and creative, and it will be more free. To modify a quote from Henry David Thoreau, if a liberal education does one thing, it is to ensure that when you come to die, you don't then discover that you have not lived. Thank you.
think we have time. I'm reading a book, a mis a mur sorry, thank you. I'm reading a murder mystery by Louise Penny. Um, and I'm, I've been wondering, as you've spoken, I think it qualifies as a great book in the sense that it, the characters that are drawn and the conflicts that make up the plot draw deeply on different versions of the good, uh, deeply in terms of uh, uh, Western, Western traditions of justice and the worth of every human being versus uh, a very distorted uh, view that um, we've got too many people, we've got to cull. Mm -hmm. I would argue, well, I'd like to ask your opinion, does that kind of novel qualify as a great book because it engages the kinds of human issues that you're speaking of? Not knowing the particular novel, just going by your description of it, I would say yes. I mean, this, this opportunity to see from the inside different conceptions of the good and then to see them clashing and debate and interact, it's a humanist education, right? It is, it is the closest you can get to a lived experience of holding those views and seeing how they mesh in the world. Um, literature has this unique capacity. There is nothing else that allows us to do that. And I should say that, that it's one of the ways in which, so film does something like it too, but really film does it less well than books, that aspect. Now, I, I, I do believe that film, there are such things as, you know, there are great books and there are great films. Films that, that, that are uh, suitable for the kind of liberal education that I'm talking about. But this, is, this particular aspect that you highlight and that I highlighted with respect to literature is one in which the written narrative really excels even beyond the visual narrative. Yeah. 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 Right. And you know there was a time when Dante was read by the common people. I mean Dante in particular is written in the vernacular, right? Latin Dante decides to write this high poetry not in Latin like high literature is supposed to be written, but he writes it in the Italian vernacular to make it accessible to people. And many of the novels that we think of today as great literature were popular novels when they, when they were first written. So there is nothing about uh, great literature that makes it inaccessible or elitist at all. Do you think that you're, oh, thank you. Do you think that your experience made the exploration of the great books more intense? Almost like someone who hasn't eaten salt then eats a very salty meal. Yeah. And so therefore, because it's been around us yeah. and our culture for so long, we kind of ignore it. People that live in New York don't go to the Statue of Liberty, <clears throat> right? Right. I speak from experience. I've been to the Statue of Liberties, to the Statue of Liberty twice, each time to take tourists that were visiting me to see it. Um, yeah, I think that my particular experience gave me a kind of heightened alertness 
to what I was reading. So when I, when I landed at Columbia, I had been in the United States for six years. When I came, I didn't speak English, so I got there with the English that I had learned um, in six years, mainly in school. At home, I lived in a small Dominican community that revolved around the church, speaking Spanish, eating Dominican food, having conversations about Dominican matters and church matters. And then I got to Colombia, and I liken the culture shock that I experienced going from my public high school in Queens to Columbia College as a residential student in the dorms. I likened that culture shock to the culture shock of coming from my small town in the mountains of the Dominican Republic to New York City. It was like landing in Mars. It was, it was a, a place that was impenetrable to me, that I could not read, that I could not figure out what I was seeing. And then I landed in the classroom and took Literature Humanities, the first year core curriculum course, where the first thing you do is read the Iliad with 20 kids, and the whole freshman class is reading the Iliad, and you're in a group of 20 reading them with a professor, and then you read the Odyssey, and then Sophocles, and Euripides, and Aristophanes, and Aeschylus, and Thucydides, and Herodotus, and the New Testament. And reading those books in this whole new context, in this whole new world, I was grappling with my own sense of my own humanity, with what this place was where I was, what was this country where I was. So I think that that, that, that the fact that that's when I encountered the books and the, and the fact that I, ha I was so urgently needed, needing a grounding, needing something to orient myself, I think gave me a heightened alertness to the books. I should distinguish that though from a, uh, any sense that somebody who wasn't in my situation would not find these books extraordinarily illuminating to their own experience. That's what makes them great books, actually. Um, every summer, and, and Rich Morrill mentioned this program, every summer I teach for three weeks in July low-income high school students who are the first in their families aspiring to go to college. They come to Columbia, they live in the dorms, they eat in the dining halls, and we spend two hours every morning reading Plato, Aristotle, Thucydides, Hobbes, Locke, Rousseau, um, etc. And part of what I find is that these old texts speak with a living and urgent voice to these students. You should see them, and every if any of you are in New York in July, let me know. You can come and sit in one of these sessions and see these kids grappling with the big questions. Um, I, I often say that by the end of the course, they are talking about Plato and Aristotle and Rousseau and Lincoln and Jefferson like they were having dinner with them last night. Uh, there is just this intimate familiarity. And, and do you know what it means for a low-income high school student, a 17-year-old, 16-year-old, to read Aristotle and disagree with Aristotle? You know what that does for the, for the student to have a debate, to say, you know, yeah, Aristotle, I, I see what you're saying there, but are you looking at it this, 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 this other thing that you're not accounting for? The empowerment that comes with that, the sense of agency and the capacity that it develops in, that, in them to look at the world in which they live and see these debates and these issues and these questions and these arguments playing out in front of them to understand that what is being debated in Congress today 
has deep, deep roots in the nature of political power, in the relationship between the state and the individual, in, the author in, in what constitutes legitimate political authority, in how an individual balances his or her own self-interest with the self-interest of the community. It uh, gives them like a uh, sort of like a roadmap to understand the political and social reality. So even though those students, some of them had similar experience to mine, but some of them don't have similar experience to mine. So I don't want to, while agreeing with you that I was in a particular place that, that, that made these books urgent, I don't want that to be confused with the fact that you need to be in a place like that to find those books relevant at that time in your life. Yeah. Well, I think that's a wonderful insight okay. to, to complete our program on. Thank you so much. Thank you very much.